Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Aaron Sabarium, reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And I'm Charles Street Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and contributing editor of City Journal. Charles, how are you doing today? It's the the seed oil people are at it again. I'm very mad at the seed oil people on the website. What, what are this, what are the seed oil people doing, well, Charles? Sending me tweets about the seed oils. And I keep trying to explain to them that all the arguments are bad. It's very upsetting to me. Here, like here's here's my basics. I don't really believe I don't really believe in science. I mean, I do because I believe in science. I don't believe in science. I'm highly skeptical of simple causal inference claims, and so I'm deeply dubious that we can know very much about the long-run impacts of diet, for example. And so the seed oil people they come to me and they say, "Look, seed oil consumption has risen dramatically in the past twenty in the past." 60 years, and so too is obesity. Therefore, seed oils cause obesity. I go, that's not how that works. And then they make the same arguments. Makes me very upset. That's that's unfortunate. I'm alienating. I'm alienating like half our listener base. By do they do they have any do they have any putative causal mechanism for how seed oil would do this? It's inflammation. It's always inflammation. It's, it's inflammation. Always inflammation. Never not inflammation. The, the free radicals, because it's the ratio of the of the IL three to IL six. I can't re-derive it. Everyone who's explained it to me doesn't actually have the biology background to explain it comprehensively. And then when you speaking nation, interesting. <laughs> well, speaking of okay. speaking I'm of complicated, I'm, I'm alienating our listeners by saying we're going to come back to seed oils. I would say seed oils. After. I I I am I am resolutely agnostic about seed oils. I keep an open mind to that's, to people who are on both sides of this debate. I'm, um, that's, that, that, that's some lip shit. Okay, speaking, but but yeah, speaking speaking of speaking of biological markers and complicated biomedical debates that neither of us are really qualified to weigh in on. Charles, why don't you tell us what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, you know, and I think I think I'm very interested in you know th- this is this is a little bit outside of our concern for institutions per se, but you know we're very interested in we're like this we're interested in sort of technological change and how it shapes institutions and the and the genetic testing revolution has sort of crept up on us really rapidly. I I I was born in 1994, which you know dates me for the audience, but so I was not around for the O.J. Simpson trial. I was not conscious for the O.J. Simpson trial. And watching, learning about it later on, it was shocking to me that the jury had to be introduced to the concept of DNA evidence. And you fast forward to today, the best estimate at the start of 2018, something like 12 million people had had part of their genome sequenced through services like 23andMe. And then there were another 5 million by the end of 2018. So it's growing at a rapid pace. Doing this gives us powerful insights into our health and our future risk for things like breast cancer. But it also produces new kinds of information that can dramatically shape the direction of our society. As our guest today has written, quote, genetics will bring transparency. That much is clear. Future generations won't fortuitously discover long lost relatives because they are likely to be in the database already. Indiscretions that might lead to obfuscated paternity will be impossible to hide. If a child has a genetic mutation that causes illness later in life, the parents will have the choice to know beforehand, and then they can choose to tell the child or not. So, you know, these are, these are, I think, just sort of small examples. And so we're interested both in the particulars genetics and more generally the way that genetics, g- genetic testing is likely to shape, is likely to shape our, is likely to shape our society. Aaron, do you, you know, do you view sort of a synthetic take? Yeah, well, so, so I think part of what Charles is, is gesturing to is the sort of legibility 
right? That genetics brings where we can just understand more about the human, human population. States can understand more, people can understand more about each other and about their children. And that obviously has implications, you know, its own implications. I'm interested in what I would say is a, is a related but different point about sort of inequality and what, how, how we may sort of exacerbate it or correct it, but in a kind of dystopian way, as we start to learn more about the genetic drivers of say, you know, I don't know, IQ or the genetic drivers of various illnesses, I think there's going to be a very big temptation to use genetic science to sort of, you know, improve the human condition. And there are obviously applications of that that I think are good and, and uncontroversial, but it also seems to me that there is a lot of potential for those kinds of genetic engineering projects or, or, you know, perhaps less charitably eugenic projects that genetics research is going to make possible for those to go really badly. And so, and just for example, our guest, I think once floated the possibility on Clubhouse that because the genes that predispose people towards intelligence also often predispose them towards mental illness, a lot of parents may start trying to like, you know, sort of breed a mental illness out of their kids because who wants their kids to be really depressed. But if everyone does that, you may get fewer kind of like depressed, like weird genius types. And if those people disproportionately contribute to, you know, like economic growth or innovation or what have you, that could end up sort of in the long run, having some very bad effects for humanity. So there's all sorts of different ways in which this stuff could yeah. go, but, um, but that's you know, what I, I really I, want to get into. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, for, for me, I think I'm, I'm concerned about the Pandora's box quality of all of this. I, I, I like to joke, I like semi joke, I like to tell my wife that she's not allowed to get one of these tests because she's engaged in snitching. She's like, you know, she, she will, by revealing this information, making it as you, you we allude to the concept of legibility, the idea of yeah. being more understandable, comprehensible, measurable by the, by institutions in society. But I think this is a major step forward. It's one that I'm alarmed by, which is sort of what I want to drill down on today with our guest, who we'll now bring in. Razib Khan is a commentator. His writings all over the place, from the New York Times to Quillette to the National Review. He also actually makes money. As a, he, he works in the private sector as a consultant on genetics. He is also, is this true, Receive, that you're the first person to sequence your child's genome in utero? Is that just something that was made up on Wikipedia? No, it's so you can, uh, everyone should Google uh, Antonio Regalado, Receive Khan, MIT Tech Review reported on it. Do I think it's literally true substantively? I suspect that there might be someone in China or in Dubai that did it. But we are, my, my son, my older son, is the first human who is alive, who was sequenced in utero, according to any, everything that we know in the public record. Yes. Okay. So, oh, no, so how that's did, sort of- how did, how did you react? Oh, I'm just curious. So, so like, how did you react to those results? Like- Well, what do you mean? Like, the, like, <laughs> well, like oh, you knew everything about your child. Like, this <laughs> is an interesting question. It was cool. Cause, uh, yeah, like, so I posted, so, you know, I want to make sure like a fraternity. So I did a quick PCA. The child was half South Asian, half European. And I posted the PCA online. And then my friends messaged me. They're like, wait a second, but you don't have a son. And I'm like, not yet. 
<laughs> so it was <laughs> so like that's how I announced that my wife was pregnant. I put to the principal component analysis of his genetic results. You know, you can go to NPR. Like I did, I think an interview with Don Gagne about like what I found out. Nothing super incredible. Like he has no disease that we know of. So it was, you know, nothing actionable as we would say. Uh, but, you know, I figured out some phenotypic characteristics ahead of time that pretty much check out. So for example, I mean, this is like seems trivial to most people, but it's like eye and hair color predictions were just like spot on. Uh, the differences from his sister were exactly what, you know, those, those algorithms are pretty good right mm -hmm. now. So we can predict that. Like, you know, I know some other random stuff about his metabolic processes and, you know, stuff related to skin. I knew all of that before he was born, just because like, I just pulled the data, uh, reanalyzed it myself. And I still have it. I still have it on a hard drive. I actually have it in Dropbox. I have his whole genome sequence on Dropbox. <laughs> so I don't share that. I do share my own. If anyone wants to Google, just Google Razib Khan genotype. You can pull my genotypes on all the different platforms as well as my whole genome sequence if you want to look at it. Just yeah, so, you know. so, so Razib is, Razib is radically transparent in all things. I guess, you know, these seem like relatively mundane applications, but it seems to be, again, both from a surveillance perspective and also from mm -hmm. potential for abuse perspective, there are already things that can go wrong with the technology. Sure. You're talking about sex selective abortion or abortion based on disability. Mass abortion. Well, I mean, that, but you know, that's, the, that's happening. That's happening, sure. A, a lot, a lot. Yeah. People just don't talk about it because the people who are, the people who are doing this are, I mean, they don't want to talk about it because it's taboo, but like non-invasive prenatal testing, like any of your listeners who are pro-life probably who care, probably know all about this. It's ubiquitous for women over 35 and even under, and it's hard to get the exact numbers of like, you know, termination rates based on, you know, positive results, but they're quite high. Um, and, you know, I'm sure you guys have read about Scandinavia. They just don't have Down syndrome children anymore. Right. Iceland doesn't have kids with Down syndrome. But our, our ability to focus in on traits that are not even undesirable to society, but undesirable to specific parents that we don't want people to select on, that we think it's harmful to select on, is only going to improve. So I guess, you know, an, an opening question is, should we be alarmed about that? And is there a reason that we should permit it to go forward? Well, so I mean, the abortion question is like, is, it's a separate, I think it's a separable issue, but yeah. in terms of selection itself, right. I mean, we engage in eugenics like every single day with the made choices that we make. And so the, qualitatively, there's really no difference here. It's just, it's an exotic. So, you know, if you read New York Times articles about in vitro fertilization in the 1980s, people were really freaked out. And today I hear like evangelical uh, Christians talking about how it's like a gift of God that they used in vitro fertilization. So this stuff can change really rapidly. I think in terms of screening and selection, NIPT, we don't even talk about it. You know, this is a technology that really came into the into being in 2015. Like it's only it's only because like amnio is basically gone. Like there are there is some amnio that's used to like cross validate and do other things, but amniocentesis, which is like you put a needle in there and you do all that, that's really decline and crash. There are companies that have gone out of business because of non-invasive prenatal testing, but we don't talk about it. Well, why you don't talk about it because it's awkward because what do people do with those results? You know, what do people do with those? So like, you know, Richard Hanania said something about abortion and selection. And, you know, I, this is a, this is a political scientist. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, uh, yeah, he's a provocateur. And, you know, I, I listen to the commentary podcast. I pretty much agree with everything aside from their foreign policy stuff, you know, but I do have to say, you know, they were like outraged and, and like, you know, how could he say this? But like, the very people that listen to podcasts are the people that are using non-invasive prenatal testing. You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of, uh, 
I don't want to say hypocrisy, but like there's a benign. Every time I point out to academics who are whinging about eugenics online, about non-invasive prenatal testing, they never respond. They know very well what they're doing. You know, so I think like a lot of this stuff will happen gradually through. And like you gave some numbers from like three years ago. It's at 40 to 50 million now, by the way, just in 2020. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And the, right. Those are the those are the most recent numbers I could find. Let me let me take a step back and just sort of get some like context for our audience. I think a lot of people who are listening will maybe have done 23andMe, maybe done the ancestry genetic test, yeah. but they don't necessarily know what's happening, what's involved. Can you give us sort of the the pocket summary of sure. what genetic testing is and how it's evolved over the past two decades? Yeah. So two decades ago, even when you guys were born, there was no human genome sequence. Like we didn't have a map of the human genome. So scientists like 30, 40 years ago were speculated there was 100,000 genes. We had no idea, right? So we had the first human genome in the year 2000, the draft genome that Bill Clinton announced with Francis Collins. The genome was actually fully complete only recently, but it was mostly done. In any case, so we got a draft, we got a map, that's 3 billion base pairs. That's the human genome, right? That's three gigabytes if you just have it as a raw text file. It cost also conveniently $3 billion in today's money, okay? So by 2020, 2010, it cost $20,000. And so there's a spreadsheet of all the people who've been whole genome sequenced in the world in 2010 that I download, like people like Steven Pinker, James Watson, you know, Skip Gates was, I think, the per like person of African ancestry who was sequenced, you know? Today, there's on the order of a million to 10 million. Nobody really knows. It's impossible to track. You can get a consumer-grade whole genome sequence, all 3 billion base pairs, for $200 now. So you went from $3 billion to $200 in 20 years, okay? So you go from blue sky, big science, national scale science technology to consumer technology within 20 years. That's a massive change, right? So the stylized fact, which is a true fact, actually, it's not just stylized, sequencing destroyed Moore's law between 2010 and 2017 in terms of the cost per base pair, okay? When you look at 23andMe and Ancestry, that's a slightly different technology. It's called genotyping arrays. Basically, it looks like a subset of your genome that's variable. So within your genome of the 3 billion base pairs, about 50 million are variable and about 10 million are common variants. 23andMe has an array that's 650,000 positions. Ancestry uses an array that I think is about 800,000 positions. So these are 800,000 variables. Now, when I say 800,000 out of 3 billion, people are like, oh, like that's very little, but it's a representative subsample. The ancestry predictions are perfectly valid, perfectly robust. And you know, now we talk about, oh, they only have 800,000 positions, but you know what? Like 30 years ago, so LL Kavali Forza, who in the second half of the 20th century really created human population genetics and historical inference, he wrote a book. He wrote a book called History and Geography of Human Genes, and he used about 200 genes. Like he could have named every single one of the genes he used to make his inferences out of 50 years of research. I have in my computer right now 20,000 human beings with 300,000 markers. Let me get even a little nitty grittier because I was not very good at biology in high school. Some of our listeners are probably better. Shame on you. Listeners probably better than me. I know, I know. But so, so, so when I'm, you know, when I'm undergoing a test, what's, what's, yeah, I'm, I'm going to spin to the tube and mail it to 23andMe. What do they yeah. do? And what, yeah, what the they information that I can get out of that? Yeah, yeah. So they take your saliva. They do a saliva test, by the way, because of privacy reasons. They don't want non-saliva material because saliva you can't steal from people, right? You got to get their consent. So if they set hair or cheek swab, who knows where that came from, right? So that's the first step. They have a process where they know that like the person consented. They take the saliva. They do something called PCR amplification. So basically, there are some cells from your cheek in the saliva. And what they want to do is take those cells, that genetic material, and blow it up. And so they do PCR amplification. They blow it up. And then once they blow it up, they have amplified DNA 
what they do is they have a chip. It is literally a tiny chip and they put the DNA on the chip and the way the chip, way your DNA binds to the chip is tells them the genetic variation that you have. Now, this is all a complicated technology that's only possible with, you know, our digital technology and our, you know, fab. I mean, this is like, this is not like biology, like anatomy or anything like that. It's very, very digital. Computers are like taking like the information that are coming out, the signals, these statistical profiles and learning from them and figuring out the patterns. And so the raw readouts, I've actually seen it because I've done some chip design in the past. The raw readouts are like this weird scatter plot. And then it figures out from your scatter plot, whether you're an A or a C. Okay. Based on like what the distribution of the scatter plot is, you don't see that. Obviously all it says is your raw data is a text file, right? It's a text file of, so if you have 23me, it's a text file of 1.3 mil, million letters, 650,000 pairs, right? And so that is like the raw final output, A, C, T, and G out of the signals that are coming out of the chip. But from that, you can learn like an enormous amount about any of a number of different factors. Like, so what are, what are some of the things that I can, what are some of the things that I can get yeah, yeah. information? Yeah. So these are focused on uh, polymorphisms, variants in the genome. So most of your listeners probably know most of the genomes, not variant, not information. You know what that state is. But there are, there are genes that you are, um, you differ from other people in. And the way you interpret that gene, the genetic data varies. So one thing 23 me, I think 23 me has done a good job about this. So like, you have a base rate risk of something, right? So let's say your risk of type two diabetes is 10% based on all your demographic data, whatever, like, you know, and then they look at a genetic variant and they say, oh, your risk is two times higher than the base, right? So all of a sudden you have a 20%. Now there are other cases where you don't really care too much about the base rate. So I have a friend and he got a result. He has a 50% chance of being blind by the time he's 55, but he has a, he has a high penetrance macular degeneration. Uh, genetic position, right? So the, the the number of people who get who go blind by the time they're 55 is very, very low. So it would be ridiculous to say like, oh, you have a 200x higher probability. What they just told him is you have a 50% probability of being blind by the time you're 55. Now, there are some cases where you have like you carry cystic fibrosis or you have an autosomal dominant gene. And so these genes like so autosomal dominant genes are just you have one copy that causes the disease. It has high penetrance. So you have the variant it's a C, it causes some protein malformation, you have a disease at some level, or it will develop at some state, right? And so there are those predictions. And those are the classical things that geneticists used to focus on. They used to use very, very, I don't want to say primitive, but they used to use CR methods where they would basically target the specific gene, cut around that part of the genome with these custom enzymes and amplify the, that gene. And so, you know, some of you during the COVID period, for example, you know, you do get a PCR test. Well, PCR test is very specific, but a PCR test only looks at a few positions and it's kind of laborious, right? So what the SNP array tests and the sequencing tests are doing is they're scaling it up through automation, through mass production. In, in the future, I don't believe we will have that many PCR tests. So for example, if you're an Ashkenazi Jew and you want to know that you have Tay-Sachs, right? Like one yeah. thing you can do, or if you have the gene for Tay-Sachs, one thing they used to do is a PCR test where they would like target that genetic position and get the state. Well, in the future, what's going to happen is everyone's going to be sequenced at birth and you're not going to need to do a PCR test. They're going to know already by the time, I mean, you're going to know by the time you're able to know everything. So basically whole genome sequencing done well is already all the total information. You never did do, do supplementary tests, right? And that's the dream. And we can actually do that now if we wanted to.
And and Razib, so so where are we? Uh, obviously, I think most people agree. Yeah, screening for Tay Sachs. That's that's reasonable, normal. Where are we with knowledge of what genes predict traits like, say, mental illness or you know IQ or or other things where you can imagine it getting more yeah. dicey? Yeah, so there's a spectrum in terms of, you know, what you would call like in terms of the genetic architecture and penetrance. So there are these genes that you are just alluding to, like tight stacks, cystic fibrosis, they're carrier genes, they're at one position, and you make a really strong, strong prediction based on the genetic state, right? Then there's other genes, like, so for example, let's talk about autism or schizophrenia. Both of these are actually quite heritable. So like something like 60 to 80% of the variation of the population is due to genes. I think like, uh, you know, probably people in the audience, see you guys maybe have known of families where it's like, okay, like there is a risk for autism or schizophrenia, like it runs in families. This is not uncommon. We've known this forever. Well, now, instead of just looking at patterns in families, geneticists are looking at the specific genes. They're identifying the specific genes. I believe that probably the biggest application of prenatal screening in this decade, in the 2020s, is going to be the next step after Down syndrome and the chromosomal abnormalities will be at these genetic positions. Because, I mean, people who have schizophrenia and autism in the family, it's not just Rain Man. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not fun. Like, you, you, you see the people that are quite high functional, say, the autism spectrum disproportionately, you know, but, like, a lot of people with autism are basically mentally retarded or, or like, mentally yeah. disabled, whatever the word is, you know? And people who have it in their family, they know, they know the, you know, frankly, the burden. And so they're going to do screening. So that's going to be the first thing. I think that's inevitably going to happen. Mm. I wouldn't be surprised if some rich people are already doing it. Actually, I know rich people are doing it. That's a separate issue. But it's not like, you know, insurance isn't paying out for it yet. Probably it will happen in Europe first, like in the National Health Service, we'll probably start paying for it because, I mean, they know how much an autistic child is going to cost them, right? And so they're like, oh, you know, <laughs> yeah, they know, they know what, the, what the lifetime cost of the National Health Service will be. And so they're going to encourage screening. Well, Okay, so this is actually a, a bit of a digression, but but I think this is an important point. So so because certain healthcare systems, you know, have especially strong incentives to ration given the way they're funded, like the NHS, which is true socialized medicine. Do, do you think that we're going to see a trend worldwide where the more socialized the medical system is, the more incentive there is, yeah, the and the more, more frequent, yeah, the more, yeah, the probably. more, the more you think that will happen. And yeah, I mean, it's already, I mean, I've already, there's already anecdotal evidence. Like I've already heard reports of like, you know, kind of like subtle pressure. Like, why are you being a freak and, you know, carrying this baby to term, like, you know, in, in the NHS and the British system, yeah. it's a pretty secular society. Yeah. It's a, uh, that's already so, happening. I, that well, happen. so, so here's a question. I mean, so, so, you know, uh, you're obviously right that for all we hear about these sort of savant autistic geniuses, it, it's often pretty debilitating and, yeah. you know, really more, more, you know, if it's not high functioning autism, it's pretty bad. It's also the case that a lot of the people who have invented really important yep. things sure. were autistic. Yep. So what do you see as kind of the light, like, like if we start trying to get rid of autism mm -hmm. and we get good enough at like, you know, identifying what causes autism, what do you think that's going to do to like, you know, GDP growth? <laughs> And and things like that, and on like yeah, the horizon. There's no Sorry. Isaac Newton. Yeah, so I guess I guess the issue here is, you know, autism and schizophrenia are a spectrum, and if you select 
for the tails, you're probably going to inadvertently select outward, you know, beyond the tails. And so the distribution of the profile will probably shift if that makes sense. Right. right? And so, yes, you know, there are people. So, you know, within science, there's often like this idea that there are normal, no, like normally brilliant people that are kind of like taking the vector in the normal direction. They're just faster, better. They're just better at being engineers, at being physicists, mm -hmm. whatever. And then there's people that are orthogonal. Like they come from a different universe, different dimension. And not only are they fast, but they're extremely creative. And so to give you guys a concrete example, you know, like, uh, so in the 1960s, WD Hamilton was working on the idea of inclusive fitness. And this is the idea that like, okay, like you would sacrifice your life to, for two siblings, for eight cousins, et cetera. You just do the math, right? You're one, one half related. So you need two of them, et cetera. Well, there's a more general way to use, to, to derive this through correlation structure within groups and stuff like that. And this was, it's called the price equation. It was invented, it was derived by George Price, who was basically a mentally ill chemist who had no background in biology, who ended up dying in a homeless shelter, committing suicide in 1972. This is a very, very troubled human. W.D. Hamilton, who, you know, pioneered inclusive fitness, Dawkins has eulogized him, big deal. You know, he said that uh, his method of driving inclusive fitness was very clumsy and primitive. And like when he saw what George Price did, he was like, whoa, this is like, you know, he said like, it's like he introduced me to introduced me to startling new landscapes, right? And so it's almost like only a crazy person would think about doing what Price did. Eventually, probably in like decades, maybe we, they would, the Price equation would show up. I mean, it's not like, impossible. But the point was price like leapt over these ravines that are very mm -hmm. dangerous, that are very weird. And so I do wonder if people like that are going to disappear. I've read that physicists have told me Einstein probably accelerated, you know, relativity probably would have been discovered within a generation, but he probably accelerated it by a generation. Why? I mean, you read about his biography. He's obviously a very weird dude. So how much of this correlates with schizophrenia and autism? The evidence on this is very, very, from the genomic perspective, is very, very modest right now. But there is some evidence that there's high IQ correlations between schizophrenia and creativity. So, yeah, it might have an effect on innovation and creativity. But you know what? The flip side is like, do we really need that much more innovation or creativity? I mean, human society before the modern era was pretty stable for thousands of years. And maybe like this sort of like, you know, liberal ish interregnum is just some sort of transient. And we'll go back into a stable state. Well, so I, I kind of want to pick that fight, but I actually, I want to sort of ask the obverse of Aaron's question instead, which is like, so you, what Aaron is asking is in essence, you know, if you, if you trim one tail, you end up trimming the others. If you get rid of, if you filter out the people with severely debilitating autism, you also filter out the people with high autism. But it also seems to me like genetic testing will, will, will increase the frequency of the mean of the distribution. By that, I mean, will have a homogenizing effect. People will select for traits which are more common because they'll be selecting against difference because there are ways in which differences penalize. And sure. it's concerning to me to think that genetic testing can lead to a more homogenous society in general, not just at the tails, but in the middle as well. That, you know, by by trying to exercise power over power over our genetics in a systematic rather than haphazard way, what we are doing is producing society with less variety, less diversity, less whatever you want to call it. That seems bad to me. Can you comment? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so there's there, there's two things. There's two things I say that one thing is like 
you're assuming homogeneity of preferences and there's probably going to be trade-offs, you know? And so some, so for example, well, no, I mean, like think about like something like for example, if you, people have an average preference. Yeah. But like, if you can only prefer one of the two things, right. So there's some people who are going to prefer athletic children. Like I had, you know, I had a friend whose mom was like, all she cared about is he made varsity, even though he was doing really badly in school. She just cared that he passed. Right. Like I didn't like get it, but and actually my friend was kind of annoyed because he wasn't the best student, but he could have done better, but he had to make varsity. Right. So that was her preference. And it's like, if you go, if you talk about, talk to sperm banks, people have different preferences. Some people are like tall athletic. That's their like primary, primary fixation. And then there's other people who's like, I don't care if the sperm donor looked weeby. Like they're like, you know, three or four sigmas above, right? Like they want that. And so I think that there's going to be trade-offs. There's going to be heterogeneity based on that. There will be, and also like, there's going to be like, you get, you get, so for example, it's better to be tall than short if you're a dude, all things equal. Like that's actually a universal, you know, I've never heard of a woman, like I really dig, dig them short dudes. I mean, maybe they are there, but you, you know. Yeah, I mean, you I'm know not who you're talking to. We're talking to <laughs> Jewish guys. Like, yeah, yeah, this is not, well, so, so you and I are triggered. You're, you're confirming the heterogeneity right here then, right? Like Jewish women, obviously we're okay with short guys. So, well, and, well I mean, also, also, well, you know, the, the, the Jews have, the Jews have other traits that can help probably compensate a bit, like higher IQ and being like dominant. That's just a social like, construct. That's just a social right. construct. Well, you know? well, yeah. I mean, well, actually, actually though, though, Razib, I mean, so, so this is maybe something to just a ask about as like a basic question, then we'll get into some other things, but like what, what percent of IQ is heritable? Because yeah. obviously there's no, 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 because like in the discourse or, or genetically heritable, because in the discourse, right, there is this idea that it's all environment and, you know, everyone has the exact yeah, same shot. That's and it's dumb. All, that, like, that is dumb. Right, I know. But like, but like, but like, we want to If you believe that, your IQ is low. No, I, right. <laughs> well, well, so, so we're not, we're not low IQ here, but, but yeah. we also realize that there is a lot of what you might call misinformation, right? Sure, in sure. the media. And, yeah. and we, and, and I do think it's important for, for listeners to have a baseline of, so, you know, granting that all this stuff, there's lots of confounds, we can't be sure, like, best guess, like, your your raw G, G factor, IQ, yeah. cognitive horsepower, how much of that can be changed depend by the environment and how much is just baked in by your genetic code? Yeah, so about 40 to 80% is heritable, which means it's due to genes. The, the low value is probably in like more deprived environments. If you're a upper middle class American, probably you're closer to the high value because you're getting all the good environmental inputs. And if you're actually still dumb after all that, you're just dumb. <laughs> okay. I mean, like I had a friend and well, we weren't friends, but he was a friend of a friend. His dad was a dentist his mom was dumb and he was dumb and he had all the privileges in the world. And he was, he was so dumb that when he got in the bottom 10%, he thought he got in the top 10% of a standardized test and I just let him go with it, okay? This is how dumb this guy was, <laughs> okay? And that's not, that's just his, that's his, he got it, he, he took after his mom. Let's just put it that way, right? So there's people like that. So like, if you talk about upper middle class and kind of people that probably listen to this podcast, you know, we're talking like 60 to 80% heritability. That means 60 to 80% of the variation in the population is due to genes. Now that doesn't mean that there's like not variability even within families, like the standard deviation among siblings 
is like seven or like eight to 10 points. So it's like, it's like two thirds to three fourths of the standard deviation within the population. So the correlation is only 0.5 between siblings, right? So it, it, you know, I mean, for social science, for social science, that's a really high correlation. Like for physical science, that's a low correlation. So biologists and definitely physicists are like, whoa, that's a really low correlation. But social scientists are like, they don't, they don't, they're not going to tell you directly, but they'll be like, oh yeah, that's actually, you know what I'm saying? That's absolutely 0.5 right. correlation, right? Right. I mean, well, this actually maybe is a good segue into a, into another question I want to ask. It's a little more philosophical. So, so we mentioned our, our friend Richard Hanania earlier, and he had an interesting observation that the more one learns about genetics, the more right wing one tends to become. But, you know, from a certain perspective, that's actually very counterintuitive because you think, well, you know, if we understand how much of, you know, inequality is due to factors beyond individuals control, like, say, just, you know, their kind of genetic endowments vis-a-vis IQ, you might think, wow, well, like, all, you know, these different starting points are like really totally arbitrary and, and, you know, are not really due to things within individuals control. So maybe we Mm -hmm. should have like mass redistributive policies Right. And yet, even though some people have, in fact, made that argument, most people who study genetics or, or, or it, it does seem like, you know, most people who yeah. are aware of this stuff, maybe at least in the United States, tend to take on a more right wing yeah. balance. Uh, so, like, wh- why do you think that is? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that I could say. I think one of the things that I wonder about is if liberal left wing social economic views in the United States are highly moralistic in their derivation rather than like simple like materialism where like okay stuff mm-hmm. happens everyone should have a minimum standard of living so they're like okay well you know they're poor because they're treated this way they've been given an unfair like hand by society we as society so maybe if they find out oh they, they they're just not that bright and modern society doesn't reward most skilled workers oh screw them then I, I don't know. Like, I mean, I'm not liberal. You know, I have never been liberal myself, but I wonder if it's because of moralism, because there are some people like Freddie DeBoer, for example, is famously like he's basically a communist, but he's pretty much a hereditarian. And he takes like a very straightforward view that like, yeah, like low IQ people, like they're just not going to get the benefits out of this capitalist system. And they they deserve, you know, everyone deserves a certain minimum mm-hmm. standard of living. It's very straightforward. And so he's a hereditarian. Basically, you listen to my podcast with him. It's like, He's more hereditary than me. I had to like kind of like walk him off the edge a couple of times. I was like, <laughs> I don't know what you're saying. I don't know if you want to say that, bro. <laughs> you know, if like Razim's starting to get worried about you, you got to like, you know, look in the mirror. But uh, but I think most people are quite moralistic and emotional uh, about a lot of their political views. And so when they encounter facts about the universe that they take it for granted, I think that that causes like this sort of flip that you can see in some people. and. I think that's I think that's what it is. I think like rationally, you can posit a counterfactual. But, uh, people actually aren't thinking about it rationally. They're thinking about it emotionally. They're thinking about, you know, are they the deserving poor or the undeserving poor? Someone like Freddie DeBoer would not use that sort of categorization mm-hmm. at all. Right. But actually, even though most people who are liberal or on the left might say that they don't believe in that, maybe on some level they do. And if it turns out that, you know, this group of people are doing badly just because they don't have the aptitudes in the modern economy, maybe they would be like, screw them. I don't know. I mean, they don't say that. So so I want to I want to I want to ask sort of the adjoining question, which is like, 
Yeah, so, so Freddie DeBoer, who you're alluding to, is sort of a, a leftist author. He works in education theory, education policy. He wrote a book called The Cult of Smart, just for our audience, for our listeners. He wrote a book called The Cult of Smart, which makes the argument that Razib summarized. And I think, you know, he's part of a, a broader tradition, which ranges from, you know, him on the left to somebody like Charles Murray on the right, who says that selection on the basis of intelligence or on skill more broadly will lead to a bifurcation in society, that you'll have, you know, that, that, that meritocratic pressure putting the smartest people at the top will create a society of extremely talented people who have all of the stuff and extremely untalented people who have none of the stuff. And, you know, that might be, that would be good in the Freddie Dwyer world because it leads to the communist revolution or bad in the Charles Murray world because it leads to the communist revolution. But it does alarm me as a possibility. And it seems like something that, you know, a possibility towards which we are marching uh, as we become more able to control IQs, become more able to control what our children look like selecting on these factors. Is there, do, do you think that's a possible outcome? Is that something that you worry about, that sort of meritocracy trend? And if there's anything you do about it? Well, so I think the issue here is actually, so I have a friend, he, his name is James Lee. He wrote a Wall Street Journal article about pre-implantation genetic screening and whatnot. He works in cognitive neuroscience, psychometrics, and you know, he actually wrote the Wall Street Journal, just do James Lee, Wall Street Journal, why we should not do, you know, this sort of selection stuff, because it's going to create like this crazy arms race. And, you know, like, you know, in the, in the near future, we might be the dumb ones. Like we might not even recognize our offspring. They might be multiple standard deviations above us and stuff like that. So I think it's a legitimate argument. Those of you who read science fiction know, like in the Dune universe, you know, they have limitations on technology. So this can get out of control when we do identify like all of the alleles that are associated with extremely high IQ, yes, in the future, like it's easy to imagine the 21st century within our lifetimes, being able to target and change those or screen for those or create a synthetic human being. I mean, there's all sorts of opportunities. So I think we need to have a normative moral discussion about what we value as human beings, like what a good life is. Like, you know, I think one of the problems of modern American meritocracy, it's like jumping through hoops and each hoop, is is the is the ends in and of itself. And there's actually no like broader discussion of why are we here? Why are we doing all this stuff? You know, it's like you go to Harvard, you go work for McKinsey, you know, then you you go to Bain. I mean, you just do one thing after another. Then you retire and you go on vacation, but it's a hiking vacation. Like, you know, modern, modern American meritocrats are always working, they're always racing, they're always trying to be number one. But like, what's the point of being number right. one if you don't actually live and enjoy life? And so I think that's a legit question. I think that from a genetic perspective, I think the key here is like, look, let's be entirely candid. We can cure recessive disease within the next generation, right? I mean, that's good on the whole, right? Like, I, you know, we're talking about quantitative yeah. traits. We're talking about intellig intelligence schizophrenia, but like understand that we can like screen and cure cystic fibrosis, right. sickle cell malaria, ALS, all of these things that like, you know, like we're not going to have Jerry's kids telethons anymore. Like we're going to be able to cure ALS. Right. And so right. that's what we're, that's what's going to happen first. Now, yes, in the future and in parallel tracks, other people are going to be doing more controversial, more, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe more problematic things. I don't know. It depends on what your values are, but I don't, I don't want us to like, you know, we're talking about like all the scary stuff, right. but you know, there, there's, I, I know someone who has a, an infant child with cystic fibrosis Basically, they had some rare variants that didn't come up on security. Okay, this happens. And I told him, I'm like, I'm 99% sure that your child is going to live a normal life span, lifespan because CRISPR technology will get good enough within the next 10 years that by the time they're an adult, 
they will actually have enough restored lung function. That they're never going to be a marathon runner, but their life expectancy is probably going to be 80 and not 45. I, you know, I think one thing this points to is that we obviously do spend time fantasizing about these hard, scary dystopian scenarios, but it, it, it reminds me a bit of the climate change debate in that people often talk about these scary scenarios and are like, we must avert them. But when you actually look at like the incentives and the data, I mean, if it's really as bad as the doomsayers say, it's like, there is no way we can like, you know, in like five years, completely reorder our economy. It's not going to happen. So, so really what you're actually left with, if you, if you take it seriously is the climate change will happen and it's functionally unstoppable. And the question becomes, how do you live in a radically changed climate? And it seems to me that, that for the, because genetics is going to cure so much human suffering, it, it, it essentially is unstoppable. It is, it is impossible for human beings to turn that down on the basis of these like tail end dystopian scenarios. So the question is going to become, assume perfect legibility of human beings, assume that we know everyone, everything about everyone, like how do we prevent that from becoming yeah. dystopian? Because we know that's where we're going to get. Well, so this, this is like, you know, France for obvious reasons is trying to, I think they still have laws about genetic testing related to paternity, you know? But I yeah. mean, look, like you're just, like, <laughs> you're putting off the inevitable. You're putting off the inevitable in terms of like, like there will be no paternity uncertainty within a generation, right? Like no one's ever going to be, no one's ever going to be pulling one over on anyone else. And that's just a fact you can pass whatever law you want to. And Europeans have tried to on various issues. Like Germans like to ban genetic testing because they're German. You know, that, you know, there's some reasons there, you know, but, uh, yeah. but, but you know, <laughs> there's some reasons there, but uh, right. they're capable of doing it. Right. I, 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 I think we were too quick to dismiss the possibility that, that you can't curtail some of the abuses of this stuff, right? Like we are, we are talking about a fairly radical technological transformation, transformation in what we know about the world around us. I'm not so, I'm not so sanguine about like a, it happening. B, I'm not so certain that it's a it's an inevitability as Aaron is. You can certainly make the choice not to go down this road. There's a power that we have. Well, well, I mean, I mean, I mean, I think you're right that we that like metaphysically, yes, like we have the power. There's no law of the universe that says we must do this. But like, think about the internet. I, I mean, I mean, that cat is kind of out of the bag. I mean, you can talk about like China too trying to well yeah but like we're not going to and like we all kind of know that and Good. and i mean sure i don't know we, we like we could arrest razib and imprison him no i mean so i want to talk about i want to talk about an adjoining yeah. issue and we, we will wrap up in a few minutes but i want to talk about the, the the sort of part of this that most alarmed me i, I for the benefit of the audience talk a little bit about the golden state killer um, oh yeah who's just james yeah. d'angelo who committed quote at least 13 murders 50 rapes yeah. under 20 burglaries between 1974 and 1986 not captured cold case for decades and then his his i I forget who it is i think it's one of his one of his distant relatives does 23 and me and he's identified yeah and so on the one hand it's great i'm glad that we caught a serial murderer and on the other hand i am alarmed by the fact that the level of the people's ability to get away with offenses and avoid surveillance by the state has been dramatically curtailed in this very obvious way. Wait, wait, um, why, why are you alarmed, Charles? <laughs> 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 because I'm an American and yeah, I, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. 
distrustful of the government, a distrustful of the expansion of government power. This yeah. is, you know, I, I, I keep throwing these hypotheticals at you, but like my point, you know, th- this is a real palpable change in how we are governed. This is the, the key question of eligibility I brought up earlier, a key palpable change in how we are governed. Yeah. What do we do about that? Well, so one thing that I don't want to alarm you further, but I think the government is actually government and law enforcement, other than these, they're actually under more restriction than private actors. So the Golden State Killer was discovered through JetMatch, which is a public database. And so there's all these public databases. If you're a private actor, you can search around and find people relatively easily. So let me give you an example. I have a friend. He heard that his dad, his parents are divorced, his dad had an affair on his mom and in the town that he grew up in, he had a half sibling, a half brother, and this was a rumor in town. So he goes online and he finds a match, one fourth match. Oh, it's his half brother. Actually, it's not his half brother. It's his stepdad's sister. His biological dad was not his biological dad. His stepdad who he hates was having an affair with his mother for the whole of the marriage of his. So anyway, I'm just trying to say, it's like you're talking about the government and all this stuff. People are just poking around, man, and stuff is blowing up in their face. So I actually think that you should worry as much about the choices individuals are making and the havoc they're creating in their own lives, you know? Well, right. Like like the concept of legibility, you know, it's associated with seeing like a state, the James C. Scott book about how states, you know, try to make their populations legible so they can govern them. But you have a great line at the end of this National Review piece where you say, the sweet and innocent courtship that defines the early stages of a relationship may immediately be subject to the cold glare of genetic permutations. And what you're alluding to is that like, you're going to be able to like, you know, you go on like a first date or something, you can just like find out everything about the person and know, know like immediately that if you were to end up marrying the person that they, your children would have X or Y risk of genetic disease. And it seems like that just knowledge would, it really does seem like a very radical thing to introduce into social interactions. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. And 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 I don't know. I mean, do you think that it would be possible for us to evolve social norms that either constrain that, or for us to kind of live with that knowledge and have it not be totally dehumanizing? Or I, I, so I like, think part. I think part of it is like education. I think we just yeah. need more education. I would say that because I'm a you know, genetics communicator or whatever. Like people need to understand that there's like incomplete penetrance, there's trade-offs. This has always been part of our existence. I do think that there's going to be upsides where it's like, okay, if it turns out that you both carry recessive alleles, like, and you want children, do you really want to go through pre-implantation? You know, you know what I'm saying? Like there's things that are going to be like this Jewish community has been doing this with Tysacks for decades. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that sort of stuff will be, will be taken care of. But a lot of it, people will be like, you know, I still like this person and it doesn't really matter. And a lot of people have risks and everybody has these risks. It's not like amazing. You only know about the people you know about because there's an ascertainment bias of who gets tested now. But really, when everyone gets tested, you'll see that almost everyone has some risk. And then all of a sudden it will, I, I, you know, my whole, my assumption is it will demystify things a fair amount. And then, you know, there's going to be a minority of cases where it's going to affect their decision, okay? There's going to be a minority of cases where it's going to affect, but I don't think it will affect most people. I don't think it's going to be ubiquitous in society. I, and I'll, I'll, I'll kick to Aaron to close, offer his closing thoughts. I guess 
<laughs> Post this conversation, you know, if you Socrates in the public says you gotta throw the poets out of the public in order to create such stability and peace. And you know, no friends with Zim, we totally gotta throw the geneticists out of the republic to preserve such stability and peace. Like that's my <laughs> fundamental takeaway from this conversation. I am not successfully convinced that we are not heading down a disturbing road in which genetics facilitates increased increased state surveillance, increased social disharmony, the 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 division of society into genetically distinct classes like us it's really bad to me so you know uh, Aaron, there's always there's always winners and losers charles well i mean i mean you know i think I yeah think but they're way less random soon to say to say i mean i mean i do think to, in in razib's partial defense it is true that this kind of genetic class sorting has already to some extent happened organically and I mean, I do think that, like, you know, the actual knowledge of everyone's genome, like, right in front of you, that that is just different. But, you know, I, I it does seem to me that if you're going to raise these dystopian concerns about, you know, like, Brave New World or genetic or, or you know, eugenics, you're, you're taken to their logical conclusion. They imply a pretty sweeping indictment of what we've already gotten. So, I mean, I do think that's a fair thing to say. I, I would just say, look, I'm, I am broadly, though, with Charles, maybe not quite quite as alarmed but uh, you know one thing i often go back to is i i I wonder if genetics could turn out to be the sort of biological equivalent of atomic science where you know look like nuclear power could end up solving like the climate crisis it could end up doing a lot of really great things but the tail risk of, of you know the invention of atomic science is nuclear war and the total destruction of life on earth right and when you think about it that way, I actually do not think it's obvious that if we could go back in time and or you know and and kill all the people who invented atomic science and prevent it from like ever existing, it's not obvious to me that that would be the wrong thing to do, given just how big a risk there is of nuclear war. I mean, you may think that it's small, but like if it happened, it would literally like you know destroy humanity. And yeah, I don't think maybe the stakes of genetics are quite as high, but like, it does seem like, you know, the immediate rewards are perhaps more visible even than the immediate rewards and benefits of the invention of the atom bomb, which means that there's just more and more incentive to, to do it. But the risks, I think, are are really quite substantial, but they're also less immediately obvious or gruesome than the risks of atomic war, which means I, I worry that we may we may not really realize what we've done until it's too late and you know i'm sure that we'll still have like society and there will still be meaningful lives and whatever you know i don't think it's like going to be true brave new world no, but no it could Rezeeb, be Rezeeb is going to end american society as you know, it, it, it could be on. it could be it could be bad but uh charles what what's sort of your conclusion yeah i mean again i you know yeah. uh to receive out of the republic is my view to receive out of the republic why don't we why don't we take a few minutes to to recommend some things to our audience we'll let Razib hop on to aaron do you have a, a recommendation for us this week yeah i have a very non-political non-controversial one which is every year around the holidays when we're recording i i get this kind of italian sweet cake called pandoro it's just really good i've always eaten it growing up around Christmas. I, you can, any place that sells kind of Italian specialty foods usually will sell them. You should get one and have it. It's good. It's a lot of fat, but like, you know, just, just budget, budget your calories accordingly. It's, it's pretty delicious. And, and the taste of Pandora will, will momentarily distract you from the oncoming genetic dystopia that we've just 
spent the last hour describing. I'm going to talk this week about, you know, when, I, when I'm playing with my kid, he's not so talkative. He knows five, ten words, something like that. And so I like to listen to podcasts or listen to audiobooks when I play with him. I've been re-listening to Neil Stevenson's Anathem, which a uh, five, six, seven-year-old alternative sci-fi, but envisions a world like our own, but different, in which scientists have been segregated from society, pushed into, pushed into cloisters like monks. Yeah, it's, it did it, it, it jives to the topic today. It's a it's it's a great work of alternative world building, and also they're not allowed to do genetic manipulation. They've been banned from doing that, which is part of the story. So uh, you know, it's it, it it follows from that policy preferences. Razim, do you want to feel free to plug something up to and including your work outside of your appearance here today? Yeah, sure. So I have a Substack, Razim.substack.com. Check it out. I mostly actually talk about the past, not the future. So we've been talking mostly about the genetic future which is a real thing. It's a passion of mine. My private sector work uh, that, you know, I haven't talked about because like, it's none of your business, more and more B2B. You know, that's what I focus on, right? The genetic future. But, you know, I think everyone out there, if they haven't read it, they should read David Wright's Who We Are and How We Got Here. It shows the power of genetics to infer things about the past and basically reconstruct our history and our demography in very, very concrete way. So wh- why does this matter? I don't know. Why does history matter? Why does the past matter? I think it's fascinating. And I think that Aaron and Charles, particularly Charles, have probably alarmed some people in the audience. But you know what? Genetics does some, you know, does some great, has done some great things in uncovering the, the truth of human history. And I think like everyone can can agree that that's cool. Yeah. With that, yeah, I encourage, I'll second the recommendation of everyone to check out Razib on Substack. On, he has a podcast, Razib Khan's Unsupervised Learning, which I is one of the podcasts I listen to with my kid. He's also very good on there. And otherwise, he's on Twitter at Razib Khan. So we encourage you to follow him until he's banned from public life under my authoritarian rule. With all that said, thanks as always to our producers at Nebulous. If you have questions, comments, concerns, feedback, criticisms, love letters, or you want to send us your genome, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. I think that's about all the time that we have. Until next time, I'm Charles Van Lehman. I'm Aaron Sibarium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. We hope you'll join us again. 